Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Daisy Cousins Presents. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, and my, do we have an enlightening show for you tonight. The last seven or so years have seen a bit of a demographic transformation of global politics. Populism, particularly right-wing populism, is on the march, characterised by a mobilisation of the working class against the elite leftist laptop class. Remember, in this context, working class doesn't mean poor, hence the confusion many on the left have exhibited at this shift. After all, the left has long touted itself as the champion of the downtrodden and the working class, which they were, until, of course, the left became more concerned with COVID jabs and radical gender theory than cost of living and family values. Now, this populist shift began in earnest in 2016, first with the victory of Brexit in the UK, and then, of course, with the victory of President Donald Trump in the US. My, that was a good year, wasn't it? In 2019, we saw the re-election of the Tory party in the UK, with UK Labour delivered its worst result since 1938. And in Australia, we saw the election of the Liberal Party with Scott Morrison at the helm, a victory that most pundits, with the exception of yours truly and a couple of others, said was impossible because the cultural zeitgeist surrounding both the Tories and the coalition was very much against them at the time, especially in the context of climate alarmism. Nevertheless, it was the working class mining seats in Queensland that allowed the coalition to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat as they were rightfully concerned that a Labour victory would end their livelihoods. Then along came COVID and we saw a societal split into two cross-ideological camps, those who valued personal freedom and responsibility and those who would prefer to bootlick for big government. Generally speaking, the laptop class fell into the latter camp and the working class into the former. Australians will remember the tradie protests of 2021, which saw tradies protesting the vaccine mandate of the CFMEU morph into a broad coalition of dissidents who, sick as they were of former Premier Daniel Andrews' diabolical COVID lockdowns, took to the streets to protest for their freedom. A similar uprising took place in Canada with the truckers' protest. But what of Europe? Well, that's where my eminent guest tonight comes in. In 2022, over 30,000 Dutch farmers protested against their government in the wake of new environmental regulations that required farmers to radically curb their nitrogen emissions by up to 70% in the next eight years. This would have required farmers to not only reduce their fertilizer usage, but also to reduce the number of their livestock. While large farming companies, of course, have the means to meet these regulations, it would have been the death of smaller family-owned farms. In response, the farmers blockaded streets and refused to deliver their products to supermarket chains. And my guest this evening was on the ideological front line covering the whole thing while the elitist mainstream media, the epitome of the laptop class, either refused to report on it or simply cast the farmers as extremists. My guest tonight is a journalist and a commentator and contributes to numerous publications, including Spiked, Unheard, and Newsweek. 
He's also an assistant professor of international relations at Webster Vienna Private University and hosts a popular podcast entitled The 1020. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to present to you tonight the eminently educated, the thoroughly thoughtful, the seriously slick Ralph Scholhammer. Ralph, it is beautiful to have you here this evening. How are you? Good grief, Daisy. I mean, you should do my introductions all the time. You didn't <laughs> forget to mention my, my devastatingly good looks, though, right? This is the one thing you should definitely have mentioned as well. <laughs> well, thank you very it's much, It's a great Ralph. pleasure to be on. Oh, no, it's a pleasure thank to have you Thank you so much for here. having me. Well, thank you for mentioning your devastating good looks. Of course, that was an, <laughs> an oversight. Should absolutely have been in the intro. <laughs> now... <laughs> Now, Ralph, you have been a respected academic and a journalist for a long time, but you really rose to prominence globally early last year when you brought to the world's attention um, the Dutch farmers' protest. Tell us about the significance of that protest. Well, as we discussed almost, I mean, time is passing so fast, right? As we have been talking about back then in the day, I mean, one of the key significances of this event was, and I think this is something that we still have to distinguish, it was more the straw that broke the camel's back than to think uh, that this happened in isolation. And what was particularly frustrating for so many Dutch people was if you have the world's best agricultural industry, and then the state comes along and say, we have to abandon this for environmental reasons, for ideological reasons. We can't do this any longer. It's not just frustrating. It's also seen as an attack on your way of life. It's also seen as an attack on more or less, right, what makes you proud of your country. Because this was a little bit, I have to admit, sometimes not by bad intention, but a little bit mis misrepresented in the media. The Dutch farmers are not like this, you know, yeoman farmer, small land parcel, hardworking farmers. Those are highly educated, industrialized, high-tech farmers. This is why they're so good at what they're doing. They are quite literally the Silicon Valley of farming. And again, quite literally, what the Dutch government attempted to do would have been the same as if Gavin Newsom in California, I mean, this might happen at any day now, tell Silicon Valley, you know, this whole high-tech thing, this whole IT thing, we really shouldn't do this, right? We should do something else. We should find alternatives. And this would have been devastating for the Dutch economy. Uh, and it would have been devastating for Europe at all. Because again, the Dutch are exporters of the agricultural products. So if there is less available in the market, it would have devastating effects for, for everybody else as well. Mm, and it, it was quite a big deal for this protest to take place in the Netherlands, wasn't it? Because as you've pointed out, the Dutch people are, are, tend to be very consensus-oriented. Um, is, is that certainly the case? Oh, yeah. One would say they're unnervingly consensus-oriented. You see this, for example, in their parliamentary system. Pretty much, Daisy, if you and I would travel to Amsterdam and after 24 hours we decide to found a political party, probably at the next election one of us would sit in the Dutch parliament. <laughs> so it's very, very, quote-unquote, easy to get into the Dutch parliament. It's a very, again, it's a very open system. Um, you have over a dozen political parties. Uh, and then on the one hand, of course, makes it possible that many different views are represented in the legislative. But on the other hand, of course, it's very, very difficult 
to get a, a strong government that can do anything. Because as you can imagine, it's not one party, it's not two parties, it's sometimes three, four, five parties who have to form a government. And they all bring their own ideas, they all bring their own ideological, uh, you know, preconceived notions. And then to actually get anything done gets increasingly difficult. But this is again something, of course, that the Dutch people know, that the Dutch people feel. But in the past, in many ways, particularly also the Dutch bureaucracy, and this was true, by the way, in other parts of the West as well, mm. worked well enough that you kind of could have these, let's say, um, idiosyncrasies within your political system, but overall people had the feeling that things are working. And I think this is the key thing. People no longer, and when I say people, I mean all over the West, they increasingly have the sense that things are no longer working the way they are supposed to work. And I think that's true in Australia. I think it's true in the United States. I think it's true in continental Europe. And I think it's true in post-Brexit Britain, right? I mean, the expectation of at least those who voted for Brexit was that Great Britain will regain its autonomy, that they will make their own business deals, that they would get rid of ridiculous EU regulations, that they will kind of leave the more centralizing pressures from Brussels. But if you look at what actually happened was they took in many areas, for, for example, in the environmental questions, they really took like EU regulations and made them worse. Mm. So the Brits until recently said, oh, we have to end the internal combustion engine by 2030. Even the EU says 2035 is going to be soon enough. And we both know it's not going to happen in 2035 either. No. And I think this is the frustrating thing for the British people. Uh, you vote for Brexit to free yourself <laughs> and then you get a domestic government that is basically more restrictive and more regulatory than Brussels was. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary isn't it the, the the terrible irony of that and um do you do you you know on the subject of brexit do you think that the farmers protest the dutch farmers protest was part of that broader working class uprising against the the elite you know which arguably started in 2016 with brexit and of course the election of trump well, yes and no, right? I mean, the, the problem is even that we have a little bit of a problem also, you know, when we when we look at, for example, who voted for Trump, when we look who participated um, in the farmers' revolts, so I think that the Canadian trucker protests actually have been the most authentically working class event in all of this. As we said before, the Dutch farmers, again, to call them working class, I think is tricky. I mean, mm. they are definitely, they are working class in the sense of they are magnificently hardworking. They're magnificently innovative, right? They're magnificently um, good at what they're doing, but they are not, as we would say, in an economic sense, right? Working class compared to, let's say, upper middle class or something like that. So, yeah. so they're not poor people, let's put it this way. But I think this is also something where we have to change the perception of what we mean by working class, right? The idea that working class does not have to mean poor. I think it has to shift. Working class is, in my opinion, at least, those are the people who keep things going. So if we then take a look, so who would qualify under these conditions for working class? Well, it's the farmers who make the food, right? It's the miners who produce um, uh, the resources we need. It's the people in the energy sector. Uh, it's the people working in the grocery stores, right? It's the people that pretty much provide us with all the things we need for our daily lives to go on in a predictable and comfortable fashion. Now, who's kind of is not in that class? And I think those are the ones that you and I mean when we talk about the elites. It's more or less people who sit around all day and think quote unquote big thoughts <laughs> and unfortunately those people have a you know disproportional impact on both politics culture and the media and i think this is really the divide it's not so much that they say oh those are the rich and those are the poor some make that argument i'm not entirely convinced about it i think it's more there are those and i hope that the two of us are in this in this camp right to say okay we need to focus on the things that really matter right mm. kind of that's a, 
not just bread and butter issues, also kind of ideas what matters to sustain our society, to sustain our civilization, if you want. Uh, and then there is kind of this bubble above it who really engages with issues that for the majority of the population are only important because they engage with it. I mean, take one example, you mentioned it a little bit, but if you look even nowadays, if you look at the transgender issue, mm. that is not really something that's crucial for 90% of the population. This is something that is pushed from the top towards the bottom. Now, of course, it has an impact there, right? Because if the leading figures of your society walk around and say, well, they are the normies, so to speak, but then there are those very special people who are either, you know, non-binary or transgender, whatever it is, and they kind of deserve all our admiration. They deserve all our support. Of course, you will have more and more people than in this lower segment that says, well, I I'm transgender too, <laughs> right? I, I fall into this category as well. And this is precisely what we see. We have, I think, for the first time, I would argue in history, we have an artificially created social contagion. Mm. I mean, you saw it just recently in the US, everything that's going on. And what is the White House talking about? About, I, would, I think, a Transgender Awareness Month, where they say, where they, mm. where they basically make up numbers. Just to give you one example, they say 26 uh, transgender people have been murdered. Uh, no, and, and the insinuation is by, you know, by transphobes. But then you look at the numbers, right? I mean, every li life lost is tragic. But if you look at the numbers in more detail, you see some of them died, unfortunately and tragically, but in a robbery mm. and somebody died in a home invasion. I mean, this is tragic, but this shows you that apparently the United States have a crime problem much more than they have a transphobia problem. And sometimes if you have crime waves, also people who identify as trans will be victims of these crimes. Mm. But this is a kind of this, the absurdity we find ourselves that I kind of, in a nutshell, all over the West, in many ways, we are no longer a serious civilization. Right? Yeah. Kind of, we, we, we have these fashion topics. We have these luxury debates uh, that we engage in. And I enjoy it too. See, right now I'm talking about it. So yeah. your viewers will say, <laughs> well, what is he complaining? He's talking about it all the time. Yeah. But it's my wish is always to have a politician. I mean, that'd be, that'd be great, right? Kind of somebody to stand up and say, okay, like the West has been the, the global dominant power for now, give or take 400 years. Mm. We got wonderfully rich, wonderfully wealthy, and we got so wealthy that we could afford to talk about all these ridiculous topics. Yeah. But the world is now changing. We are getting poorer. Our competitors, let's call it that, I think enemies is a strong term, but our competitors are getting emboldened. The world is becoming less secure. So we need to get to serious politics, both internationally and domestically, right? Domestically, mm. this means, as we said, this means we have to secure our food Food production. We have to secure our energy production. We have to secure our education system, right? The times have to be over where we tell our young people, you have to hate your own culture and your own civilization. Mm. We have to tell them again, you are blessed if you're born in Australia, oh, exactly. if you're born in Europe, if you're born in the United States. And we have also to make clear that there are people out there that are different from you and that diversity is not always good, right? Mm. Best example in cases, um, whatever you think about Hamas, I mean, certainly if you would have 20,000 Hamas fighters in Sydney, it would be more diverse. I'm just not sure if that's the kind of diversity no. that people of Sydney would want. No, no, God, no, especially especially not in Sydney, which is like sort of an LGBT capital of the world. I think Sydney would really not like that kind of um, diversity at 
at all. And and you're so right about these these luxury beliefs, for instance. And I love the characterization of the the trans issue, uh, well, really the trans ideology rather than being trans, as an artificial social contagion because that's what it is. I mean, gender dysphoria affects very 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 tiny percentage of the population. But now we're in a situation where the elites, you know, cultural pushes are saying, well, you don't actually have to have gender dysphoria to be trans. You know, you can you can just be trans. And it's a, I think, it's a way to distract the population through culture away from the fact that we are getting poorer and you know we are we are we are getting sicker and and, and all of those kind of problems that are created by government. What do you think? No, I think you're correct. But of mm. course, what I mean, you said something almost, uh, you know, you said it, I think, too silently when you said we're also getting sicker. I think that's also true. And that's also part of that story. Right. To give you to give you one example, the uh, just, just another one, something like the body positivity movement. I mean, oh, that's yeah. a health problem. Now, there is this obesity is not good. Right. To, to say my lifestyle is or your lifestyle is going, you know, to, to try to stay fit and healthy and somebody else's lifestyle is to have a dozen donuts every day. Uh, those are not of equal value, but this brings you precisely the problem. And I think there we have to go without overdoing it, kind of almost delve into the philosophical underpinnings of our current society, which is this idea that the only bar one has to meet in order to be, let's say, you know, to find moral approval uh, is you have to be your authentic self. And what your authentic self is, it's completely your choice, right? Mm. You want to be fit and healthy, your choice. You want to be, you know, fat, obese and diabetic, that's your choice. And, you know, we have, nobody has the right to judge the other person. I don't think that's a good thing. I think social pressure is a good thing. Um, and they are doing it, right? Because you could, by the same token, say, okay, you believe that there are 25 genders and you don't believe that there are 25 genders and we all go our ways. But those who believe in the 25 five genders or, or 52 or 73, whatever it is now, they don't <laughs> leave you alone. So they do it themselves. So they say you have to respect everybody's decision unless your decision goes against theirs. Exactly. And, and this is, again, I think that's a normal thing. Societies has always, have always exerted pressure. And I think that is not necessarily a bad thing. To give you one example, I mean, how do people think that integration and assimilation works? It works exactly this way. This is, I think, one of the reasons why, for example, in, in rural areas, sometimes integration works back better than in urban areas, because if I'm a family from Afghanistan mm. and I come to a small village in Austria and my kids go to school there and there are, you know, 30 Austrian kids and, and in, in, in this classroom and two Afghan kids, those Afghan kids within 30 years will be Austrian and their parents can't do anything about it because those kids are gone unless they take them out of school. Right. This is the, the, mm. the government should support that kind of pressure. But this is there is no way to have a parallel society because the societal majority is simply going to you into Austrians or Australians or whatever it is because you have no choice. And that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. But as I said, the idea that, that everybody should keep whatever their background is and as diverse as possible, that has been a delusion. Mm. And we must understand that this is something that frustrates me when people always when you talk to people in England and say, well, this whole diversity issue seems to be a little bit right. The answer is always, yes, but but look at London, we have so many more restaurants. <laughs> yeah, but people don't only the people don't only identify as, as restaurant owners, no. right? They have political beliefs, they have social beliefs, they have values. So this is completely absurd. This is, I, mm. I don't know, right? If, if this is like, like Great Britain saying in the 1930s, we need to open our borders, you know, to, to immigration from Nazi Germany because they make really good bakeries. Mm. That is true. But you get, you don't just get the bread, you probably also get the fascism. And well, I think exactly. this is also what we saw 
what we saw in recent years, right? It's I'm sure that many of these people that that you know the 300,000 that demonstrated uh, for Palestine and for in many parts for Hamas and Armistices, I'm sure that many of them are probably hard workers and productive members of societies. But nobody gets up in the morning and says my primary identity is being a barber or no. is being a, a, a you know I don't know a cab driver or is being whatever it is, right? I know they do more than this. They say my primary identity is. For example, you know, being, being an Islamist, an Islamist. Or, you know, being whatever it is. Ex yeah. Exactly. And that's, um, you raise a great point there. There's a difference between multiculturalism and multiracialism. And unfortunately, the two tend to get used synonymously or really multiracialism isn't used at all because they're two different things. Multiracialism is a good thing because it's people of all different races and creeds living together happily in the same society under the same cultural umbrella. Multicultural Culturalism in its extreme doesn't actually work because, as you pointed out, there are s some cultures, a lot of cultures actually, that have completely opposing values. So they actually can't live next to each other and function in a society because they're always going to be fighting with each other. So in order to have a successful multiracial society, sure, everyone can maintain their you know cultures at home, and that's where we get the restaurants from. But ultimately, everyone needs to assimilate and inhibit to the kind of big mama culture of the nation in which you all live. That, that's the difference, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it is. And, and the, the, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. And the, the, the crucial thing here is the, the point is not to say that people don't have to, you know, overdo it in a sense, right, as you say. So, so when you come, for example, when I go to the United States, uh, when I go to England, of course, I'm still Austrian. Of course, I still identify as Austrian. But of course, I know if I come to another country, there are certain areas Right, where I have to adapt to that country and that I cannot expect the country to adapt to me. And I mm. think this is where the limits are. To give you one example, which is a good one, in Germany, for example, and I know it happens in Britain as well, and I also know that it did happen in Canada. So some countries, for whatever reason, allow things like polygamy, uh, right? Or they allow uh, the, the marriage of underage girls. A, a self-confident culture would say, listen, if you come to Canada, if you come to the UK, if you come to Germany, if you come to Austria, you cannot come with four wives. That's not no. going to work for us. You cannot come with, you know, with a wife that is 12 years old. But what happened in truth is that they turned a blind eye, right? That they said, well, you know, if this is how they do things there. So who are we to say? Um, how can we can, you know, how could we not allow that? And again, in Germany, this has been very, very publicly uh, discussed. The duet cases were, for example, public funding or state support, welfare support was going to people with multiple wives. Oh, and of gosh. course, the German people say, but this is not what we should do. But they said, well, you know, they married abroad and they brought them. We cannot really break this up. And this can be like, no, you have to. Because yeah. the point is, and this is what we saw now, if you say with everything that goes against, the, let's say, the dominant values of your culture, did you say, well, it's just their values, it's just their, you know, their folkloristic way to do life, then you have the same problem you have now, because this is also how we have treated anti-Semitism in the Muslim community. We said, well, they are, you know, it just happens, it's just, it's just something that these people believe, but it's nothing serious. And this is a little bit the bothersome thing. You can maintain your own culture to the point where it runs against, let's say, the key values or the key, let's say, you know, cultural beliefs of the culture you move into. And mm. to give you one example, we knew this in the past. The United States, 
there's like something that is so often forgotten. Um, the Mormons, right? When the Mormons came up with their idea of, of, of polygamy and, and doing things their own way, mm. right? the United States, despite them having, you know, religious freedom and, you know, Congress shall make no law and, and should not compel you to any religion, militarily and legally stepped in and said, you guys cannot do this, right? Because... <laughs> You are free to exercise your religion, but once it runs up against, in the U.S. case, the U.S. Constitution or the core values enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution takes precedent and you believe your religion does not. Mm. Um, I cannot have a religion where I sacrifice virgins by throwing them into a volcano because <laughs> the argument would be we don't do this. And this should be, we must learn this again. And the same is true if you're in a country, you cannot have four wives. Right? Mm. This is just not how it works. You cannot marry an underage girl. Um, and just to make this very clear, because people might say, oh, Ralph, you're exaggerating and this, you know, you're just, you're dramatizing. No, we saw, for example, in Great Britain, for those of your viewers who haven't heard about it, the whole grooming gangs, what happened in Rotherham, what happened in these areas, right? Mm -hmm. Where underage girls, working class girls were sexually abused in like, I would say, in the thousands, in the most atrocious ways, mm -hmm. society and the British state turned a blind eye. This is probably the most evil thing the British government could have done because we know now from the victims that they did reach out, that they did ask for help. And the answer was, mm, we can't yeah. really do anything because, because you know, we would we might look racist, yeah. we might look intolerant. And so we are sacrificing in many ways our own culture, our own civilization, and innocent people on the altar of multiculturalism uh, and, and again, these, these weird upper-class belief systems. And we do this in other areas as well. I'm sure mm. we're going to talk about this because the same is true when you tell people, you know, in the energy sector, you don't need gas, you, know, you don't need oil, you don't need coal, it's all going to be wind, solar and EVs. Yeah, if you can afford it, maybe, mm. but if you can't, then you... You, you don't benefit from it. No, no. Sorry, this took much longer than I anticipated. No, 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 I'm, f I'm fascinated. No, my, my God, no, I'm fascinated. Please, no, thank you. The the insight is um, is, is tremendous. I'm, I'm so enjoying it. And, and look, on the subject of, of maintaining culture, and um, I guess what you're talking about is cultural relativism, you know. Well, they do that kind of thing. Who are we to judge them? Let's just, it's all, it's all relative. And I mean, I hate cultural relativism. Um, it, it, it never works. It is, it is very, very evil. And as you pointed out, innocent people end up suffering. And one nation that I'm guessing has probably got sick of its, of its government and societal cultural relativism when it comes to things like mass immigration is, again, the Netherlands. I mean, they've recently had an election and who'd have thunk it, but who would win but a right-wing populist, he's anti-immigration, Gert Wilders. Um, this is an extremely interesting development in politics, particularly on the back of Javier Malay, who was very similar in Argentina uh, winning. What's going on in the, in the Netherlands? What can you tell us about the election? Well, the, the, the Dutch elections were super interesting because, as you correctly pointed out, right, I mean, Heert Wilders has been around for over 20 years. Mm. So it's not because some people say he's the he's the Dutch Trump. He has been basically, he was, you know, he was the Dutch Trump before there was the American <laughs> Trump. So he has been around for a long, long, long time. Yeah. Um, and his, his positions, he softened them a little bit, which I think was strategically smart because I think he realized that the global events are moving his direction anyways. So for him, it was no longer necessary to stand on the rooftop and yell fire. Mm. He just could tell people, you know, the flames are coming ever closer. So what did I tell you? 
And, and we saw this because he wasn't doing that well in the polls uh, before October. And after the events of October 7th, after the Hamas attack on Israel, and particularly the mass demonstrations in, in European and in Western European uh, capital cities, I think this was a breaking point for the Dutch. I think it was a breaking point for many people uh, in many cities. I think we had local elections in Germany shortly after where also the right wing did very well. I think that also was a factor in this because people are starting to ask, I think, a very serious question, which is, what exactly was the benefit and the motivation of decades of mass immigration? And I don't think that politics has an answer to it. And I was recently talking to Austrian and German politicians, and I know this is frustrating, and I'm sure that many Australians have a similar experience. And you ask them this question, and basically the answer is, A, we don't really know ourselves, and more dangerously, B, there isn't really anything you can do about it. So this is going to be the, the big challenge for Wilders. This is going to be the big challenge for all these right-wing parties. There is, I don't want to use, I think the term deep state is a massive exaggeration. Yeah. But we must imagine, and everybody knows this, and we saw this also over the last couple of months, right? Kind of this, this, because it's not just relativism, as you correctly described. It's more a relativism that ultimately is relative towards everybody else except their own culture, because that's the one culture you're allowed to hate. That's the one culture you're allowed to despise, right? You can turn down monuments of Churchill. You can turn down monuments uh, of Roosevelt, right? You can have lectures that say that the West is racist, colonialist, imperialist, that needs to be destroyed, and the chickens are coming home to roost, and all these kind of things. So every culture is fine except Western culture. Mm. But the problem is, in this social environment, at the universities, they also train the future bureaucrats. Yes. So you might have, and we'll see if this is going to happen, even if Wilders becomes prime minister, he will end up like Donald Trump. You have him on top, but then whenever they try to do something, it's going to get stuck somewhere in either the bureaucracy or an activist uh, judiciary that try to prevent this because they, of course, have been marinated in exactly the kind of worldview that you so accurately described just a few minutes ago. So mm. what you would have to do at some point is basically fire everyone at least in the upper echelons of, of the bureaucracy and hire new people that do agree with your worldview. And the media would yell and they would say, oh, this is a, a purge. It's an ideological purge. And to be honest, yes. 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 <laughs> because ideology does matter. It matters what the people believe. You cannot run a country if everybody that is ultimately responsible for the things you decide that they're going to be executed, if they want to hamper you. And we see this in the energy area. We see it in the agricultural area. We see it in the immigration area. It's absolutely absolutely useless to have a prime minister, a president, you name it, to say, we need to stop, we, we now have to get tough. There will have to be mass deportations, as German uh, Schultz said. Or when Rishi Sunak says, oh, we're going to now, we're going to toughen up our borders. And then you look at the numbers and they still go up and up and uh, up and up. Yeah. Britain is the best example. Britain has now more immigration, more net immigration than they had in decades, even though every government promised the people that they're going to reduce it. So somebody needs to tell the people, so either they are lying, that's 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 possible. Mm -hmm. um, either they are so incompetent that they don't know what's going on right <laughs> under their eyes. Also possible. Or it really is that, yeah, it's also possible. <laughs> or we have created um, bureaucratic and institutional straitjackets that pretty much limit what a politician can do. And this is, kind of, if somebody would ask me, what is the, the, one of the core problems? The reason why the West in so many areas rose to power, uh, mm. this was true in Britain, this was particularly true, of course, as a German speaker, my favorite country of no longer exists, of course, Prussia and also Austria-Hungary. We built very efficient bureaucracies. We built systems where something was decided in the capital, it got executed in the furthest away areas, you know, in the furthest away provinces. Mm. So bu bureaucracies originally were created to get things done. 
what we now have are bureaucracies created to prevent anything from getting done. And That's I think so this true. should, I mean, this, in my opinion, this should be like, you know, the, the main topic for every politician to say, we have completely inversed the purpose of the state. The state exists to do things, mm. ideally, you know, in the interest of the people. But now we basically have created a state as a straitjacket <laughs> on the desires or the wishes or the ideas of the people. And it's just trying as much as it can right, to keep things as they are, even mm. though if they're not to the detrimental effect for the people. And I think this is, a, and I, I do think that after long periods of peace, which is a great thing, yes. but even then, I think on from time to time, you need your, I use this term because I want to provoke you and your viewers, of course, but I think you do on time and occasion, you need a purge of, of you know, bureaucratic institutions, of unelected um, agencies, of all these, these elements that are completely you know, removed from 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 the control of the of the electorate. But right? again, Brussels mm. is a good example. You know, different agencies in the US, but also in Australia, you basically pol politics outsourced certain decision making processes to agencies that nobody can vote out. That's so this true. is what the you know what the the future Argentinian president. You know, there's the famous video where he goes to this whiteboard and he says, you know, uh, what is <laughs> yes. it? Uh, uh, the, the Department of Education out. And, out you know, Department yes. of Culture out. Out. And yeah. He's not. <laughs> He's not wrong, no. but there will always be something like the state will always have its fingers in something. So the idea that you have a completely libertarian state is ridiculous. But he's not wrong in saying we need to look at these agencies and see are they actually still doing things in the interest of the people or are mm -hmm. they only serving their own interests and the interests of the people who work for them? And if mm. the conclusion is it's the, it's the latter and not the former, well, then. Get person out. out and then you create something else. Yeah. Exa exactly. And um, it's it's interesting. Vivek Ramaswamy, who is one of the candidates vying, of course, for the Republican nominee, has has said similar. Like, you know, you, there's all the rhetoric in America about draining the swamp. He actually has a plan, um, a concrete plan to 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 drain the swamp, as, as he put it. And he said he just wants to get rid of all the three-letter organisations, get rid of the FBI, get rid of the Department of Education, get rid of the CIA, because he said they're not doing anything to further society or to help people. They're just sort of sitting there as useless, overpaid, bloated bureaucracies that are hampering any kind of real progress to, to make people's lives better. Yeah, I mean, take, take one example. I mean, when was the last time that somebody in public office got fired? Yeah. I, mean, I think the only thing that the only thing that gets you fired is if you have either supposedly, you know, some kind of, of, of you know, racist or sexual scandal. That's the only the only things that actually still get you out of office. Nobody was ever held responsible for COVID. Nope. Uh, and we know that all over the West, massively wrong decisions have been made. The more information that comes out, I have to admit, again, I, I hope I'm not going to lose your viewers now. I have to admit that once this whole thing started, I had a, let's say, more than 50% trust in government and decision makers. <laughs> I have to say now, if I look back, uh, I was wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. this, this is, I have to admit, if the, the, the more information that comes out, the more in many ways I have to say shocking it is. Yeah. Um, again, I still think that incompetence is a better explanation uh, than, than a conspiracy. But even if somebody's incompetent, maybe you should fire them. Yes. Right? So, so there's this, 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 this idea, well, he's an idiot, but he has a government job, so we can't really do anything. <laughs> and the question was, why? Why? Right? Yeah, get rid, and, of, get rid of them. And this is, yeah. Yeah, they need to be. If, if, and it makes sense. If, no, you go ahead. Go and ahead. It's, it's, it's and, the, the, the problem is, and this is what we see also in Austria and we see some against, is because these agencies in many ways simply have become in some, like this is, I always say this is the main purpose nowadays of, of many EU institutions. They are like, you know, 
luxurious pre-retirement positions. So you can't really do anything <laughs> with those people. So you shove them, you shove them into something, right? They, they then become, you know, an, an European parliamentarian or they, they become like in the United States, you know, deputy vice secretary, vice something, something, deputy, deputy for, for anything. So, but you can't, you just, you, you switch them then to, to positions where they can do no harm. But because, no, you, you should you should fire them. People should feel responsibility in their jobs. And if you screw up, it should have consequences. Right? Mm. Nobody, you don't have to do it in China, where you know where corrupt, uh, where corrupt uh, uh, civil servants are shot. I don't think we have to go. We not, have to go that far. No, not quite but that think, far. But I think, but I think <laughs> losing your job is is a is a. Uh, I think that's an appropriate measure. But the thing again is, it's just the government has become, the state has become, kind of a buffet. For the political class, where they yeah. shift and move uh, positions and money to each other. In the United States, you have also, of course, obvious insider trading uh, with the stock markets. Mm. I mean, and this is, by the way, true for Democrats and Republicans. These people should be in prison. Mm. So th this is that that you make laws, for example, you know it's going to affect, let, let's say the you know the microchip sector, and you know you're going to make this law, so you know you can buy stocks of of, of you know IT companies because your laws are going to affect them. This is this is such. It, and and we have been we've been grown so accustomed to it mm. that we shrug it off. We say, well, th this is what they do. Yeah, but, people people just no, accept the corruption, and and they sh exactly. and they shouldn't. They shouldn't. We should not be accepting um, this level of corruption within our governments. And I think exactly. Yeah, you're right. And COVID really highlighted that. I, I mean, we, we had that in in Australia in. As as you know, it was com it was completely infuriating, but nobody has been held to account. And the frustrating thing is that probably no one ever will be held to account, you know. So people will have just have suffered under these lockdowns and the border closures and the vaccine mandates ultimately for nothing. But yes, there needs to be, and perhaps with the election of these right-wing populists, there's a move now in the public that people want these bureaucracies um, held account accountable. And of course, um, one thing that these bureaucracies are, are very, very keen on, and you and I have to talk about this, is climate change. They're very, very keen on, on climate alarmism. Um, and you, very interestingly, spoke with Jordan Peterson last year about how climate change has become ideological political and cultural. And as you put it, and I found this comment really interesting, you said that you felt that possibly some people don't actually want global warming to go away because they have just put their heart and soul into the issue. Can, can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, no, I absolutely believe this. Uh, and, and I think I can even provide some evidence for this mm. because it is no coincidence that so many who are active in the, the climate movement, whether it's Fridays for Futures or Last Generation or Extinction Rebellion or the, the likes of whether it's, you know, George Monbiot in Britain or John, well, John Kerry has changed his tune on these issues now a little bit, um, or, or Greenpeace, all these, you know, famous organizations. Uh, just to pick one example, um, we have a, an absolutely low to no carbon, for example, source of electricity, and that is, of course, nuclear power yet yes. they're all against nuclear power one wonders why we have a uh, direct air capture we have uh, a carbon capture and sequestrations there, there are many things we can do to really limit the, the negative effects of the use of fossil fuels but still kind of maintain our wealth and our prosperity yet somehow they're against all of this and this tells me something it is not so much about saving the environment it is and by the way they openly say this 
um, it is about atoning for the sins of the human race. And, uh, <laughs> of, of, again, much more, I believe, for the sins of, of, of the West. It is for, you know, the industrialization. We are a plight on the planet. We are, you know, we are, as and they say, we are like a cancer and 8 billion is too much and 4 billion is too much. And, you know, maybe 400 million would be too much. And we need to get the numbers down. It's all the John, uh, sorry, the Paul Ehrlich, the population bomb kind of thing that there are just too many of us. And what is the best way to get less of us? Well, if you reduce prosperity, right, if you make people starve and quote unquote die earlier, you get you get uh, less people. And just mm. kind of add on to this, you again, they are openly speaking about this. They they have they have no qualms. Uh, Greta Thunberg, I think, is the best example. I mean, her mask, I think, has now slipped entirely. Um, it was never about the climate. Uh, mm. it, it was always a kind of a, you know misanthropic Malthusian anti-Western, anti-prosperity ideology that, of course, once again, she herself was never exposed to the consequences of her policies because she can chat set around the world. I mean, we had this case. This was an Australian case. I loved it. I forget which radio show it was. Um, Mm. Where, where where this young girl was interviewed and, and, oh, and yeah. she said, you know, flying is bad <laughs> and you, you shouldn't go to Fiji and everything. And then the, the interviewer said, well, when did you fly the last time? And she said, well, a couple of weeks ago. And she said, where did you fly to? And she said, well, to, to Fiji. Fiji. <laughs> First of all, I loved, I loved the fact that she was so honest because she could just have lied. So I find that very likable. Mm. But it gives you a sense of what this movement is about. It is about if I say I want to save the planet, I can accept myself from the actions necessary to do so. So we're going to keep all these Africans in poverty, right? We tell all these people that, you know, live outside the cities, like in London, for example, oh, you cannot drive your car to work because we have an ultra low emission zone and then you have to pay a fine or something. Mm. But I can board a plane to Fiji or I can board a plane to Bali because I'm doing so much for the environment in my <laughs> attitudes, in my values, that I myself don't have to live up to them. They are in many ways, like, you know, the the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the medieval, some, not all of them, some of them were actually pretty interesting and good people. Yeah. But like, they, you know, kind of the, the medieval Catholics that say, well, I'm such a great Catholic. So if, if I, you know, indulge in, in 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 gluttony or these kind of things it's okay <laughs> because i do so much on the other uh, on the other end so so i'm i'm no longer convinced of this movement but it, for me it also of course falls into another category which is and i think this is what people also feel if you cannot solve a housing problem, if you talk about Australia and other areas, if you cannot solve the problem of energy bills, if you cannot solve the problem of crime, if you cannot protect your borders, so if you cannot do the basic things that define a state as a sovereign state, and then you go out and say, the global climate, the very heavens, <laughs> no problem. We got that under control. Right? People will start to say, nah, no. it's, I mean, this is, you know, this is the most kind of Jordan Peterson thing of all. It's, it's like the famous, if you cannot keep your room clean, but you say you can change the world, it's just, you know, start small and then work your way up. Uh, yeah. But I think it's something else. And you mentioned this. It's just, if you cannot, there's this saying, you know, if you solve the small problems, the, the big problems kind of solve themselves. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a little bit, the other, it works the other way around as well. If you don't solve the small problems, you then just focus on the quote unquote big problems. And that's it, right? I mean, if a politician goes out, for example, in Austria or Germany, mm. and this is also, by the way, a media and culture problem. If you have Austrian politicians talking about what we have to do in Austria to protect the climate, mm. um, 8 million Austrians will not save the global climate, right? It's, it's impossible. We can go back to the Stone Age and it would not do a blip to CO2 emissions or anything else. Exactly. But there is nobody, there is nobody in the media, there is nobody in, you know, the culture, there's nobody saying, listen, guys, 
this is ridiculous. <laughs> like eight million Austrians will not make a difference. Everybody nods along and you know strokes their chin and is says, it, oh, yeah, oh yes, we, we care so much. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. We care so much. And if you point the absurdity out, they say, well, it is because we have to lead by example. Yes. And this is again, this is this absurd arrogance. Do they really think? That people in New Delhi, that people in Beijing, that, that Xi Jinping, that, that Modi, that they get up in the morning and say, what are the Austrians doing? You know, <laughs> my assistant, tell me, give me the headlines from Austria. What is Vienna deciding? This is, it's so, it is, it is saying, on the, we, are, we are at the same time saying, oh, the West, the guilt, right? We only have to apologize. But at the same time, we believe that in our self-hatred, we're going to be a role model for others. It's, mm. a, it's a very odd psychological, you know, a, a cognitive mm. dissonance. It's so strange. On the so one hand, strange. you say... It's very, very odd, and mm. and it is it is a problem. I mean, this is I know, and I, I don't want to do the whole civilizational decline kind of thing. So, mm. but it is it is frustrating to see the mm. potential that is still there, um, being in many ways I would say deliberately sabotaged by yes. by you know the the political system. And yeah. Just as a quick note to this. It's not that, that we are the first ones to talk about this. For, for kind of, you know, you, you're more, you're, you're more, you know, uh, you're the readers among among your audience. I mean, when Alexis de Tocqueville in the 19th century wrote about democracy in America, he kind of has this one paragraph in his otherwise also very interesting writing about when he says, okay, how could a tyranny emerge in a democratic system? So what would tyranny look? Because you don't have a king, you don't have a, a dictator. What would tyranny look like? And he kind of then describes so nicely, says, it's a tyranny that is not, he says, it doesn't go for the body, it goes for the soul. And oh, I think that's such a great yes. point. So it's what, what he's describing is, right, the government gets in your way, it enervates you, it mm. frustrates, it, it doesn't punish you or something. It just, as I said, it over, so you want to start a business. Mm. And then the government comes and says, here are, you know, 600 pages of forms and regulations <laughs> that you need to fill out. And then maybe in six months we get back to you and probably then you can fill out another 600 pages and in two years you can start your business yeah so people are gonna say i'm not gonna do this yeah so it's not that the government doesn't allow you to do it they make it difficult to get yes. and we know this for example um if you talk to 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 companies when they try to build something most of the time is spent on legal issues and on regulation and by the way we do the same and that is the tricky part hmm. we do the same to the working class Right? We demoralize the working class. We, we kind of create a system where we give them enough to survive, but also exactly the amount very often kind of to keep them in a state where they cannot rise themselves up. Exactly. And this is the most insidious thing, right? Mm. So, so you create the, the, the level of comfort that is, is too little to be truly satisfied, mm. but too much to get up in the morning and say, I need to do something. And yeah. that's a... But if it's done on purpose or not, I cannot tell you. But this is also, I think, something we have to address. So it is not that it's just the, the, you know, the poor working class that is under the thumb of the ruling elites. It's also that the working class is precisely what the talk will describes. They're innovated. Yes. We have a quote unquote problem of the soul within the working class. And mm. you see this in alcohol abuse. In you know, the United States, it's drug abuse, suicide mm. rates. Right? We have all the numbers. We see there is a, there is a, a psychological malaise underway. Definitely. And very often the institutions that should solve it make it worse. Absolutely. Oh, abs absolutely. I really think you've hit the nail on the head there with sort of tyranny of, of the soul. It's, it's impossible to innovate anything more. It's like this death by a thousand cuts um, of the yes. state. Yeah, totally death by a thousand cuts. And, and look, you, you mentioned Greta Thunberg. Um, 
we have to talk about uh, Greta Thunberg. Um, you know, you mentioned now that her mask has been lifted and we see where she is. I mean, for for some reason, she has thrown herself into the pro-Palestine movement. And I've got a little clip to show you. Um, and she was called out on this by an attendee at a protest she spoke at in the Netherlands recently. Let's take a look at the clip. been listening. I come here for a climate demonstration, not a political view. no climate justice on occupied land. They're, they're somehow drawing a connection between climate activism and, and, and Gaza. How, how are they doing that? Do you understand it? Because I certainly don't. Well, it, it depends on the angle from which you look at it, but I think it falls back to what I said before, that the climate movement, with a few exceptions, there are always exceptions. I'm sure like the gentleman, for example, who stormed the stage and, and said he's here for a climate demonstration and not for, political for a political view. rally, I think he's more... Yeah, he's, he's, I think, one of the, the kind of you know, true believers in the climate issue, but many others are not. As we said before, for many others, it's a religious ersatz satisfaction of, you know, the, the part of the human soul that, that has a religious urge and a religious need. And it's, it's in many ways, it, it highlights, I would argue, the, the kind of the, the ongoing problem of, 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 you know, Western historical consciousness, which mm. is that, that, the the, the 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 German philosopher Leo Strauss, and again, I don't want to get old, but sometimes there were people who just hit the nail on the head, as we said before. He kind of made this argument after World War II. He said, yeah, in, in, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I can send your viewers the direct quote. So he said that the Germans lost the war um, militarily, but then they, they kind of forced the rest of the world under the yoke of their thinking. Hmm. And I think that's not entirely wrong. For example, the Holocaust. Um, has become, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the memory, now, not, not just of the Germans who actually did it, but it has become kind of an idea that the entire West uh, was responsible for it. And that's right, one can, that's fine, right? There's not necessarily a problem with this. But what you, of course, now have, in order to really get yourself on the moral high ground, you kind of have to, to demonstrate to the world that if you would have lived at that time, right? You would have been in the resistance. You would have been, you know, you would have stood up against the Holocaust. You would have been, you know, a better person. And what better way to do this than to say, look at the descendants of the victims of the Holocaust. They are the new Nazis. Because now you can stand up against supposedly the new Nazis and elevate yourselves at the cost of the descendants of the victims of, of the Holocaust. Mm. And, and thereby you get moral absolution, you get historical absolution. And I think this is what describes this. Because you have no other movement in the world or you, no other state in the world 
that elicits so much emotion than the state of Israel, right? Nobody talks about, you know, what happened to children in Syria, in Yemen. Nobody talks about this. But as soon as it's Israel, as you said, okay, no, no climate justice in occupied land. Okay, is that also true for Western Sahara? Is that true for Cyprus? Mm-hmm. Um, we, can, like, we can think there are many occupied areas in this world. Is this, all, is this true for all of them? Or is it just for the areas in Palestine? And I'm still not sure what she's talking about because Gaza is not occupied. But mm. truth doesn't matter. Like, as another German philosopher, Nietzsche would have told you, truth is secondary. What people believe matters. And the, the kind of the, the degree, the level to which they are willing to force that belief on others. And this is where we go full circle also with what we started with the transgender ideology. Mm. It doesn't matter if, if 72 genders exist. <laughs> if those who believe it have more willpower than those who don't believe it, we will end up with a government and a state that hoists the rainbow flag at every occasion. The Mm. same is true, of course, in the area, for example, with radical Islam, if you want. It doesn't matter whether or not they do what Allah tells them to do. It doesn't matter. I'm not a theologian. I don't know if God exists or not. That's between, I guess, you, me and the creator, then, you know, when the day comes. But the point is, the atheist might be object. I don't know it. Again, it's just an example. Mm. But the atheist might be objectively true. But the atheist doesn't matter if those who believe have the willpower to put action to their beliefs. Mm. And the same, of course, is true in the climate area. It's it's fine and good if the two of us say, oh, those climate people are ridiculous. And I think they are ridiculous. Yes. But they are willing to put action to their beliefs. They do blockade the streets and they do throw colors and uh, stuff on, on paintings. Again, I hate this. I find it ridiculous. Mm. But we, or I at least, I lean back in my armchair and pontificate on the ridiculousness, <laughs> but they go out and do something. And of course, that gives them a disproportionate impact on politics. And again, as unfortunately, as I always say, German philosophy would have told you the idea that truth will always come out, truth will always win, and that at the end, the better argument will be the one that is victorious. Right? The Germans would have told you years ago, no, it doesn't. Those who believe the most. And mm. people always ask, for example, you know, how could it happen in Germany in the 1930s? Why didn't people see how, how absurd and ridiculous the Nazis were, right? And they, I think many people did, mm. but they did the same that, that we did, right? They lean back and say, yeah, you know, they're ridiculous and those views, but they don't really believe it and they don't take it seriously. Or mm. They just say this because, but it turned out they did believe it. And yeah. the most ridiculous belief becomes dangerous if those who, who hold that belief are willing to execute it and turn it into reality. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens again and again and again. And this is just the last point because I think this is so important. The majority doesn't matter. The silent majority doesn't matter. History is never made by the silent majority. It's made by the vocal minority. To give you one example, a majority of people in 1776 did not want to become independent from Great Britain. But you had a small, dedicated, educated minority around George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and the others who said, let's do this thing. And then the quote unquote silent majority, some of them moved to Canada and the rest said, all right, what can we do? And this is exactly (laughs) what you see happening now as well. As we said, as we said before, what's the big deal? Okay, fine. Then you have a transgender bathroom and okay, then they tell our five-year-old kids the pleasures of oral and anal sex and then they have four wives. And so it's always, and the silent majority, they are very silent, but don't be surprised. And if you wake up in a society that is dominated by, you know, the not so silent minority. And I think Mm -hmm. this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think... Again, that took longer than anticipated. No, no, no. It is, it is fascinating. 
fast, it's fascinating, Ralph, and important as well. You know, it's all, it's all very well to talk about the silent majority, but I think the silent majority needs to start speaking up. Uh, because as you said, uh, we've seen time and time again throughout history, when the silent majority stays silent, well, the nasty vocal minority ends up in charge. And, and that is the, the last thing we want to see again at this point in human history. Um, Ralph Shohammer, this has been a delightful interview. It's been fascinating, enlightening. I, I'm, I'm, I enjoyed every second of it. Um, just before we go, please tell everyone, um, where can they find you online? Um, I'm horrible, unfortunately, with digital media. So I think <laughs> the best way is if you if, if you Google my name, you find me. Uh, if you if you you know just check out my Twitter account, I'm still doing quite a bit on there. Uh, I promise I'll try to get better uh, with this. Uh, I'll try to, to kind of. <laughs> I'm probably at some point going to start my own Substack to have everything uh, to have everything put all together. I, I guess I need an assistant. <laughs> so yes. I've reached this point <laughs> where I need somebody somebody to help me with these uh, with these issues. Uh, but otherwise, again, it was thank you so much for having me and I, I really hope that we can do this again in the future. Mm. I think these topics are important, right? Kind of to, because I think many people feel exactly the, the way that we do, mm. but there is still this hesitancy because you say, yeah, but if I say it, then, you know, will my friends still talk to me? Will my neighbors still talk to me? I think kind of to try to give a little bit of a voice to the voiceless mm. is, a, is, is an important thing to do. I to, think to unsilence the silent majority. I think so too. I think together, Ralph, you and I can, and others can unsilence the silent majority and give them that confidence. Ralph Scholhammer, you're wonderful. We will definitely see you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have time for tonight on Daisy Cousins Presents. What a fascinating, wonderful individual is Ralph Scholhammer. We will most certainly have him back on again. Thank you so much for watching the program tonight and thank you to everyone who made the show possible. Up next is the impeccable Alan Jones and make sure you tune in next week and every week for more of the world's most fascinating, creative people. Good night, world. I'll see you soon.